Okay then, so welcome everybody to uh, the Blue Skies Dronecast, presented this week, as always, by Tom Patterson, Matthew Hurst and Adam Giorgio. So in the virtual studio today, we actually have a special guest. Uh, we've got Richard Ryan um, from Blackiston. So nice to have you with us, uh, Richard. Nice to be here, Tom. Good, good. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about um, sort of uh, the legal side of things today. So this is Adam's uh, favourite subject, uh, I can tell. And uh, yeah, we're just going to get an overview of kind of what you do and uh, ask a few questions that we've probably got and just sort of talk through uh, the different bits and pieces uh, with, with sort of your side of the industry, I suppose, really. So um, a good place to start, and this is how we normally start with uh, most of our guests, is basically sort of uh, your backstory, I suppose, really. So how did you get into the industry? How did you sort of move towards the drones and and yeah, what sort of led you in that direction, I suppose? So uh, many, many years ago, I practiced in construction and engineering projects, and I was on a, a very large engineering project. And to capture evidence on the site as to what's been built and when, uh, project directors or managers would go out and take pictures using a conventional camera in the event that there's a dispute on a construction project, right? So... When, when drones first came along, I thought, well, actually, this is a, a really good way of getting a, a you know real helicopter view of a construction project and capturing all of that evidence so you could clearly see what's being built and when. So uh, back in the days when Euro USC existed in, in the UK, I ran off down there and paid my, paid my money and, and got qualified with a permit for commercial operations. And I started using drones myself on construction projects. And cool. my interest in drones and the technology really did evolve from there because I, I, I soon realized that as the construction industry was developing, especially with building information modeling or BIM, as it's, it's, as it's widely known, and the data points that one could get from survey, surveying in the cloud and, and that kind of stuff, uh, you could you could collaborate this data together and it would be a much more accurate evidential picture of what's been built and when. And that's where we are today, really, with respect to the technology. It's got so much better than it was maybe six or seven years ago when I first started flying drones. I mean, there is mainly just, you know, what, what can we, what's the best we can get for, from photogrammetry imagery in that sense and, and how it's evolved and developed to today using different software solutions, I think is incredible. But for me, it was about how do I help clients resolve a dispute potentially before it becomes a dispute on a construction and engineering project. And that's that's really where my interest in it started. Okay, yeah, no, interesting. And that's, uh, yeah, quite quite interesting to hear that you kind of started, I think, pretty much the same time as me. I think I was about 2014, 2015. And I went with the only other choice, which was resource, I think, at that time. It was either Euro USC or resource, I think. So I chose uh, that pathway. But uh, yeah, similar timeframes. Uh, uh, and so obviously you uh, got your PFAW, I guess it was called uh, way back when. Uh, and uh, did you end up purchasing a drone yourself? What uh, what did you go for back then? Can you remember? Or? God, yeah, I... I... I uh, I was I was lucky. I was in the states at the time, so I made on the sales tax. But um, I bought myself Phantom Two, I think it was then, mm. just to you know get into it and 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 understand it and how to use it. And I've got to say that the the evolution of technology around the the platforms it, itself has greatly evolved. I mean, it was a bit challenging for me at times to try and work out how this thing would fly and you know how to put it together and, and that kind of stuff you know and that's i suppose that's one of the things that we've all got to gr to grips with is the fact that drones have attracted a lot of people from a non-aviation background 
and and we, we're getting to that point where they are growing their aviation knowledge it's no longer what what was perceived as an exclusive club for the ga community as we now know them um but i don't want to go down a contentious rabbit hole just yet <laughs> No, that's it, exactly right. And yeah, I, I always laugh to myself and I tell all the students that uh, sort of come through our doors, really, you know, back when I started, I was I built my own aircraft that was the size of um, a small coffee table, I suppose, to lift a, a relatively decent sized camera. And now you can fit the equivalent drone in the palm of your hand, pretty much. And and more which is you know when you think about it absolutely incredible and yeah there's a few uh, few manufacturers that have kind of helped with that i suppose but also it's made it very much more uh, almost like a, a spare of the moment type of choice isn't it you know oh that looks interesting i might buy that rather than i need to understand how to solder how to you know build and tune and stuff like that so it's a double-edged sword i think isn't it with that side of things which i think is uh, is is quite interesting but uh yeah um leading on i guess uh, i'll hand over to either uh, adam or, or or matthew depending on uh, who wants to carry on with the conversations <laughs> Yeah, so I'm just uh, so I've kind of got in the notes that uh, yeah, so you did obviously did your BNUC in sort of twenty twenty fifteen ish, and you've worked. Um, I think you've done some kind of legal counsel for obviously for a few companies, uh, following following on from that. Um, the one that actually piqued my interest is that I believe you um, were working with uh, the CA at for a, a relatively short period of time, or it depends how you want to say about seven seven months or so. Yes, yes, that's right. So. Um... I, what 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 occurred to me actually was, in order to be able to in the future advise on the legal aspects of drone law, it would be useful to understand what the the view is from a regulator's lens, and so I picked up in the very early days uh, a job with the CAA in the UAS unit, um, and it was very early days for the UAS unit when I was there. That's for sure. So. I did work with the regulator and it was a really good good insight into how the regulator functions, how they bring in the expertise from within, uh, how they want to grow and nurture that expertise, uh, probably not as quickly as they would have liked, uh, I'm sure that's fair to say. And but, but also what it did give me was insight into how the, the drone world in the UK was developing at what people were interested in doing how were they how were they trying to seek an operational authorization um as we know it today to or an operational safety case as it was then um to to move forward and and achieve whatever projects or use or application they wanted to achieve with their platforms so i did some of that work and i also um got involved with nqes as they were known at the time and now raes uh, and looking at how NQE set themselves up and, and going down and, and being part of an audit team for that kind of stuff too. So it was really interesting work with the CAA. Um, and yeah, I certainly learned a lot from it. Fantastic. So it's interesting whether you're saying sort of the yeah you NQE to the RAEs. Um, I mean we've we've been an NQE since 2015 ourselves, and now as an RAE. And it's interesting actually how the auditing has evolved year on year and it's getting from our point of view you know it is getting more stringent year on year and it's i think it is more interesting the the more regulations that are coming out and the ca are having to oversee more and more operators and, and therefore obviously us as 
authorised bodies of the CA to make sure that actually we are upholding those regulations to a, a certain level. Um, you know, whereas before we were doing, seeing perhaps hundreds a year, whereas now it's actually thousands of people. And I suppose that's the same for the CA as well. It, you know, it's a completely different ball game now than mm. what it was, I suppose, when you were there. Was it 2018? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's it's been an interesting evolution. I think the UAS piece for the CAA, in ter- especially in terms of income, because you know, with the demise in the last eighteen months of the the manned aviation industry, they haven't been getting the the levels of income that they would normally achieve. I would I would I would assume, and because of that, and the growing membership of people who have registered and are flying drones and you know are seeking more operational safety cases and uh, and that general growth it means that the uas industry has become so much more formidable and really by that we should be so much more influential but i don't really see that picture right now yeah it's it's quite it's quite interesting you sort of brought that up because obviously we not not due to the CAA's fault obviously we branched away from EASA um, as part of um, the, the Brexit withdrawal agreement and now we you know, we adopted those regulations ironically I always quite find on the day that we left which was a weird I think there was an hour I think I worked out there was an hour's period where actually we perfectly aligned with EASA and then we were separate, separated completely um, yeah, that's right. so I think it's it's interesting that yeah, that we're just sort of branching off and not moving, I suppose, quickly, considering we're not, how some people would say we're not tied to EASA now. Actually, not not a lot has changed to a degree. Yeah. Or you know, I, I personally say, yeah, we've got the A2C of seatman, we've got these transition agreements. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, um, you know, will, would agree with here. You know, you've got this two-year transition period for the certified drones. We won't go into certified drones to a degree but yeah we've got this in and actually a lot of people are now are in limbo of like well do i wait for certified drones or what if our certified drones going to come to the uk um is our legislation going to change to adapt to something else um what's your kind of opinion on that you know where where do you think where do you stand with it so it's a very broad question adam <laughs> and it's i i do recall at a time actually before we made that transition out you know into into the brexit world and we had subscribed to taking on the 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 implementing regulations and i said at the same at the time to a number of people i said why why don't we just cherry pick what's good from these regulations because there is some good in it why don't why don't we just cherry pick that drop it into where we are you know filter some of that in with where we are at with the pfco uh, and everything else and what we can do is create a, a much more legislative friendly framework in the UK that attracts more business from the continent, you know, for developing drones and developing capability and developing expertise uh, and developing training and, you know, all, all of these great things. And for me, because we didn't cherry pick that, that's a, a, a an absolute missed opportunity because we all know and uh, we've all, or if not, we've got to the point now where we're realising how how legislation can be a barrier to innovation, and that that for me was a key defining moment where we could have 
okay, we, we've got to we've got to comply with manned aviation from an EASA perspective because we've got the airspace, it's on the doorstep and everything else, and we need that reciprocity between EASA and the UK because of manned aviation and everything else. There was nothing stopping us, as far as I could see, to say that we don't need all of these other regulations that relate to drones. Um, you know, one of the best, you know, if, if the question was, if your next question would, would be something along the lines, well, what could we have cherry-picked from from the EASA regulations? It would have been some of these standard scenarios that have, pre you know, the predefined risk assessments that they've come out with, which I think are, is a really, that's a really good innovation because what it means is you can go go in, get your permission for that, that predefined risk assessment, that, that 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 scenario and it's done you can then just go on go out there get your business and, and then conduct your flights and off you go without waiting months and months and months for an operational safety case to be ratified yeah. and we know that there's a delay because if there wasn't the CAA would not have come out with a, a, an expedited form of of covid flights and the rules around that in the, in the relevant cap uh, because that was all about giving priority to those who have operational safety cases that could affect the, you know, the movement of test examples and test equipment. That in the in the realm with with the uh, emergency services, the emergency services would always, especially when I was at the CAA, would always have some degree of precedence when it came to that sort of thing because of the the essential nature of their work, yeah. Yeah. which I think is fair enough. But it means then we've got to address a, a capacity and capability piece within the regulator, which has to be which is mandated by EASA. The EASA rules, the overarching EASA rules, are to be implemented by a competent authority, and they're the words that they use: a competent authority. So that's what we must have. It's interesting whether you bring it up, sort of the standard scenarios, because um, I find, especially it's both the emergency services actually as well. Um, we had uh, an ex um, emergency services uh, personnel in um, on the podcast a few weeks back, and we did actually talk about you know it'd be great if there was. I mean, there is an exemption in place for emergencies, but what we kind of discussed is at the moment it's either you use the exemption which they're saying they are regularly using it or could they do an operational authorization a uh, a pdra for the emergency services so they can kind of cut through all that well essentially all through the red tape but there's still an oversight within the regulations like okay well this pdra is for the emergency services it's not just an exemption that has to be used in an emergency it's like well if they do x y and z or they do a training course or whatever it might be they get this PDRA straight away. They have that within it, but it just seems as though there's no, I don't know, it's very slow moving. We've got the PDRA 1, we've got PDRA 2 came out, which was to do with R&D, but then that's been it. Um, yeah. It feels very slow where we're thinking, well, if we can get these other PDRAs out for all these standard scenarios, it'd be great. Yeah. You know, it, it, this That was the whole idea. You know, the recipe card is how it was sold to us. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I wrote to you, sir, um, last year on the PDRAs, asking when the next ones are coming out, and a couple have come out in terms of testing, I think. And the there has been a completely slow adoption by by the UK with respect to this. But this is another opportunity. This is what I see. Why don't we adapt that that system that we have now incorporated into a much more flexible 
way of stimulating business and innovation in the UK. You've got you've got you've now got the framework to do it. So let's let's do that. You know, we're now seeing uh, routine BV loss in France over power lines. I mean, I know some of the PRA that EASA was flexing on was around that anyway, because it's considered low risk because manned aviation clearly don't want to go near power lines for obvious reasons. But let's get it in there. Just drop it in. Let's make it happen. You know, and it's it's those kind of examples where we can see low risk in non-urban environments. Let's get these PRAs in place. And that that's what's going to help push forward. And But also it shows that the UK is, is now a leading light in this development. That's what's going to attract attract outward investment into the UK. And, you know, we need some of that. Absolutely. Uh, Matthew, I think you've got a few um, few questions to hand. Yeah, I think um, changing the sort of tone of the conversation considerably, um, I'm interested in terms of people that are out there sort of operating and listening to this podcast, starting to get cold feet and wondering whether they are operating legally uh, in their current sort of um, setup. Do you provide a service to assist people in sort of uh, confirming that their documentation is in line and that sort of thing as well? Do you provide that type of service? Yes, I do, Matt. Yeah, I've been asked on uh, a few occasions, actually, to have a look at uh, operators' paperwork, and but also um, some of their questions around how they view the regulations or how they interpret the regulations. I think in the, in the last, certainly in the last few years, if you go onto the CAA website, you can actually ping up a list of, of relevant regulation. I think there are 19 separate documents now. <laughs> and as we know, if you go to CAP 393, that's 400 plus pages. Uh, it's not it's not all that much, but it just shows how complex the legal environment has become and how it's developed. Yeah. So, yeah, there are quite, quite often I do get, um, you know, some very, very, interesting but also legitimate questions from operators out there as as they move into you know from their training phase into practice and you know they're starting to hone their skills and expertise but make it more 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 in tune with the service that they want to offer the customer right and it's you know i've helped people with their contracts of service their terms of service i've helped them with that i've helped them with you know, they're, they're, what's my position on intellectual property? You know, at what point does my intellectual property that I generate transfer to the customer? Uh, how do I get paid for that? What's the best way of making sure that I get paid for what it is that I do? I mean, I've heard some horrific stories from drone operators that are owned, owed thousands and thousands of pounds and haven't been paid. Mm. And you just think, oh my God, you know, it's, you know, this is a fledgling industry. You can't expect drone operators to fund the finance of other companies that they're working for i mean that just isn't right on on any on any on any understanding so you know it's a whole spectrum in fact um last year i i collaborated with an australian lawyer and he he wrote um a drone pilots legal handbook in australia and i did the uk version i released that last year it's on my website um and it's it's an overview so you know once a a a drone pilot's gone through you know uae uav hub to do their training how do they set up the business what are the kind of questions they need to ask themselves am i a sole trader should i go for a limited company actually i want to 
set up a joint venture because I've met this other great pilot and we want to do some fantastic work together on, on filming studios where I'm flying and he's got control of the camera, for example. You know, it could be all, a whole host of questions, right? And how do we then address you know, the privacy, the contract? Um, you know, how do I keep up to date? You know, it's all of those kinds, of, all those kind of questions. So yeah, in the in the realm, Matthew, because I've been through it myself. You know, I I, I do have an understanding of what it of what it takes. I mean, there there are other lawyers out there that that have that have been aviation lawyers their whole life. You know, they can they can they can talk talk the hind legs off how to lease a a Boeing jumbo jet, but they can't. You know, they can't talk the hind legs off. Uh, yeah, what what happens if my drone malfunctions, and what do I do with that? Right, that, that's a very different question set and a different different set of expertise. So yeah, sorry, a long-winded answer to your question. No, I think that's a great answer for sure. So um, with that sort of infinite number of variables, is it possible for for potentially individuals, but I'm thinking more along the lines of companies, to sort of align themselves with yourself or somebody like yourself to provide that sort of framework and guidance um, to sort of preemptively be prepared for an incident or or a legal matter of sort of the, along the lines that you've been describing? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, of course, any lawyer would say that, get, get, get me in early. Um, but I think, you know, on a, on a serious note, it's, it, it's trying to understand what the risk appetite is, first and foremost. And then once you've, once you've understood that and properly, properly defined it within your, your business, how do you then look, look at ways or avenues to mitigate that risk moving forward so that your business is profitable? Yeah, because protected. Yeah, that's right. Because it, it, it's great going out there and getting the work and getting paid. But if you take a hit on an invoice or you take a hit because somebody's decided to sue you for something, that 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 could wipe out your profitability, right? So it's understanding how, how do I mitigate that to start with to make sure I maximize on those those aspects that will provide profit to my business? Because at the end of the day, that, that's what all drone operators want to do. They really enjoy what they do but they're there to put bread on the table. I think that's essential. Absolutely. Um, I've just yeah. got another, um, I don't know if it's taken a step back or a step forward. Um, Maybe sideways. It's, it's probably more, yeah, it's probably more sideways. <laughs> yes. It's just, because obviously a lot of the, I suppose it's a weird weird thing now for us to move on to. You know, we're not just talking to commercial operators, we're also talking to to hobbyists. You know, the hobbyist side is growing exponentially as they've as we've kind of said you know they're becoming more accessible um the regulations have evolved to the point actually where it's super easy to fly small drones and i just wanted to kind of get your opinion on you know, well let's say two sub 250 gram drones you know you can go and pick up a mavic mini mini to you whatever sub 250 gram drone for peanuts and from a a regulation point of view there's very little regulation required you don't need your flyer id you only need an operator id if it's got a camera i just kind of wanted to get your opinion on on that side of things because you know if you don't need a flyer id that means you don't need to do a test to learn about the regulation or be tested on the regulations the do's and the don'ts and i feel like it's a as you kind of said a bit of a missed opportunity that we could have tweak that slightly to make it a requirement to make people safer because now you've just got people buying drones and actually they don't know what to do um, and, you know, and they can fly super close to people as well 
yeah, we've, we've gone from this where there was that separate, always a separation required, and now it's like, well, if it's small enough, there's no separation. Um, or if you're in a certified drone, it's no overflight, but there's still no, um, you know, well, I can still go up to 30 centimetres and still not overfly somebody. You know, what's, there's no clear kind of guidance on the safety for those small drones, I find. What's your, your opinion on that? Yeah, thanks, Adam. I think it's, it's a really interesting conundrum from a regulator's point of view, because... At what point does a toy be not become a toy? And so what they, what, the way they approached it in part was, well, is, has it got a camera attached to it or not, to your point? Um, but also the weight limitations with respect to that. And we started off with weight from day one, didn't we? And so it, it's understanding that, look, we don't want to over-regulate or overburden toy manufacturers that you know we do see some very small drones that are toys uh and clearly it had to get to a point where well what's the ideal weight threshold with respect to that before it's no longer a toy and i i think that's the conundrum they had so they you know they had to put their stake in the ground and and they they plumped for 250 grams which is where we are today uh, as as technology evolves and changes and the the capability of platforms changes at 250 grams. And we're starting to see that now with other manufacturers, aren't we, coming online. They, that, that means that the capability of that platform could be so much broader than just a hobbyist flying in the park or flying you know, off the beach or over the sea or, or wherever it may be. Um, it means now that that capability has grown and it, it you know, it, does that encroachment potentially into a complex urban environment mean that we now need to put in place an operator ID uh, because of that? Mm. If that's the I, case, I almost, that's the, sorry. sorry. Sorry, Richard. I, I, I almost think that that regulation came in uh, before the Mavic Mini or Mini 2 existed, and they probably thought no chance of a drone being that, that light, being that capable, and lo and behold, there is. And now I wonder if they're thinking, oh, is that a little bit too high? Maybe it needs to be, I don't know, 100 grams or something instead now. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that, that's right, Tom. And so what, what they did, essentially, by drawing that line in the sand of 250 grams, is they set a challenge to the manufacturers. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, and, the, and they met the challenge. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't blame the manufacturer. They're going to go where the profitability is, right? Um, mm. Right. You, you want me to build a drone under 250 grams? I'll, I'll damn well do it. And, and that's You're what on. they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, fair play to them. But what they have done, though, by doing that and accepting that challenge is that that spurred on a high level of innovation within that platform of which will benefit other manufacturers potentially, uh, you know, because they've seen what can be achieved. But also the regulators now seeing what can be achieved. And if we if we you know look forward slightly, what does that mean in terms of. Adam, you mentioned earlier about CE certification. You know, what, what does that mean in the next few years with respect to how that's going to be adapted and modelled, both in 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 the EU but also in the UK? And that's that really is an open question at the moment. I don't I don't even think the the regulators got that far. No, it's interesting no, how fast the how fast the technology has evolved. Exactly what we've been talking about. If I'm not mistaken, I. I I speak under correction, the uh, ESA regulation framework was start, they started work on that in 2016. So, I mean, in terms of a sort of 
fast evolving technology that's a long period of time that it's taken to put the regulations together and i think the technology is accelerated ahead of the regulatory development in a sense yeah and and you you'll see that if you if you look through the law generally speaking um the law is always playing catch up it's always playing catch up you know technology advances oh now we need to legislate for it technology advances now we need to legislate for it i mean you just look at the counter drone piece you know we're still looking at how the wireless telegraphy act can can impact the way that counter drone devices are used because of interference with communication devices that act is old you know it was designed for pirate radio and that kind of stuff you know now we're trying to fit you know a, a, an old square peg into a, a new round hole and it just doesn't mm. work um and so we'll see the same and it you know i'm i'm doing some work um with cranfield on, on in, in in my capacity as a part-time phd student on looking at universal traffic management and how that's going to play out in the future and you can you can already see how how utm companies are, are starting to define what utm looks looks like and and he also has published an opinion on that, but other regulators aren't aren't that quick to adapt to it. On on that, you know, we we just have to look at a patchwork of reg, drone regulation across the world at the moment to understand how how that's evolving and developing when compared to technology. And it's all it's always been slower. You know, the history of law has always been a bit behind technology. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. No, that makes sense. Um, a couple of um, other things that we'll uh, sort of carry on talking about, kind of within the scope of what we've been talking about already, actually. Uh, and that's kind of um, the the main questions we get from from students, um, sort of either before they've before they're qualified or after. And it goes uh, sort of along the, the lines of um, the the trespass side of things. So obviously, people always ask right, I'm qualified or I'm not quite qualified yet, but I need to go and practice somewhere. You know, there's nowhere to fly. You know, what can I do? And so that kind of question comes up a lot with landowners permission and bits and pieces like that. So I just wondered um, your your view really on, on that side of things too. And another one, the second one, I guess really is is the Privacy Act as well. So how, how does that fit in? And I just wondered whether that was something that you were asked a lot to do with privacy and, and trespass or have you got any top tips for people uh, sort of within that side of things as well? What do you think? They're great questions, Tom, and yeah, they are. They are asked on a fairly regular basis. Um, I, trespass, really, when we look at trespass in 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 England, it's it's you have to understand what trespass actually is, and it's it's going on to or being present on land where you simply don't have the consent of the landowner to be there, mm. and the. The tension we have with trespass is the fact that you, you can't go on somebody's land, but you can fly in the air. The the air airspace is a state asset. Nobody owns airspace, and so what we where where the tension actually is is how close. If I'm flying a drone over somebody's house, does that drone have to be in order to constitute some form of trespass? If I myself are not on the land already mm. committing some form of trespass and there is some old old case law on on this which touches on it but it doesn't touch it on a way that we're asking the question <laughs> because there's no case law you know when we're simply not there yet i'm waiting for the first test case so anybody out there let me know <laughs> um and so what, what we've got is some 
some indication of what the rules are around trespass. So if it's a a consistent um, presence where it becomes not only consistent but persistent and you know annoying to disturb the peaceful enjoyment of somebody's property then we start talking about what trespass looks like or or nuisance as it's sometimes referred to okay and and of course we know with drones you've got noise so that could be a nuisance much like your noisy neighbor who's got his his nightclub in his front room because he's been there for for the whole of lockdown and hasn't been able to go out to a real nightclub he set one up in his own house does that noise become a nuisance in a similar way you could argue that drone noise if it's persistent would become a, a nuisance and so some of the case case law around this is on that point but it was in favor of the person in flight it wasn't in favor of the landowner it was in favor of the person in flight because it wasn't persistent and that's where we're going to get to i think when we start looking at when these cases start coming into the courts and that's the that's the basis of our legal system isn't it it's all about setting a law and then because we are a common law jurisdiction it's about how does that law evolve and develop to be interpreted in a way that's that's acceptable to society mm. and that's what we're talking about here um that's how our law develops over time and then once we've got a body of case law, it generally gets put into statute books again and then we start all over again. And, and, and that's how that's the evolving picture of law as it develops. So I think uh, um, the, the whole trespass piece is going to be an interesting one. I mean, if, you know, taking off on, on you know, needing landowners permission, it, that sometimes that, that can be a misnomer. It's not always necessary to have landowners permission. But... You know, are we actually taking off and landing on land? Well, as you said earlier, Tom, you can get a drone in the palm of your hand. So if I was to be really technical about it, the drone <laughs> takes off and lands in my hand or on the top of my car or somewhere like that. Again, that you know, that would have to be something that might be tested in the courts as to what their definition or interpretation would be with respect mm. to taking off and landing on, on land. You know, and, and that's when we start getting to the real legal weeds of it all. You know, what does it actually mean? So hopefully that, that touches on the trespass piece. And with respect to the privacy piece, yeah, cameras have, have made a big impact, haven't they, on privacy and what that means. And, you know, as a nation, we're quite used to CCTV all around the place. And in fact, I think London is probably one of the most heavily monitored cities on the on the planet as far as cctv is concerned um which as we've seen you know in certain terrorist incidents that that's provided great evidence uh, when they've looked through that and, uh, and what it means so it certainly has its uses but is it is it a double-edged sword because of the potential invasion of privacy well that's that's a good question so drone operators i'm sure you, you talk about on your courses you know would be well inclined to conduct some form of privacy impact assessment um, the ICO, the Information Com Commissioner's Office, does recommend that sort of stuff. And they do have guidance, really good guidance, actually, really useful guidance on their website in and around that that kind of thing. And it's it's useful. Mm. And I have, myself, when I've flown drones, being challenged, and I'm sure there are many drone operators being challenged, well, are you filming my back garden? Are you filming into my bedroom? You know, what are you doing? Why are you overflying my property? Well, I'm, you know, it's... And, and that's that's quite a difficult ask 
when you're actually flying because you've got somebody interfering with you if you don't have an observer or something else right to, to mm. help you with that and we can come on to a little bit about that um, with respect to the the um, air traffic management and unmanned aircraft act and what that means in a moment if you'd like but i think that privacy really has got to be a consideration you, you should you should consider it in the realm as to how that might impact what it is that you're doing if it's on a construction site where you're, you know, you're 3D mapping and that kind of thing, it might not necessarily be an issue. Um, it, it really does depend on what you're trying to achieve with your camera. But we do know that, you know, you can have a drone a mile away with a really good zoom camera on it, and it can it can pick up a number plate. Mm. You know, and so for private investigators, that could be a good thing. I don't know. Um, I do remember seeing seeing an example of of. Um, somebody in the states uh they, the girlfriend walked out of the house just so i'm going for a quick walk they thought oh you know what i'm gonna film film her walking took off from their back garden and then filmed her getting into a truck with another man <laughs> in, in, a, in, a, in a retail park uh, so she was going for a walk and that's absolutely right but what he then discovered was uh my girlfriend's having an affair <laughs> so so i don't know i don't know where you go with that one but they you know um, there are all kinds of uses, I suppose. And it's for me, it's just just be very considerate as to what your privacy impact issues might be. Yeah, that's it. And I think it's it's very similar to um, what you can do with uh, maybe you know a, a handheld camera, you know, with with a capable zoom. You know, it's it's very similar to that, I think. And that's what I think people get a bit sort of hung up on, I suppose, really, which I think is is a fair thing sometimes, depending on you know what you're doing with the drone and what you're doing with the camera. I think really too. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, moving on then to um, a bit of advice, I suppose. So sort of getting towards the end of the interview, I suppose now. Um, Adam, did you have any sort of points that uh, we want to raise to do with um, some advice for our listeners? What do you reckon? Yeah, um, just in regards to sort of the um, the traffic management, I think what we might do, Rich, is perhaps get you back on for that because I think it, I, I get the feeling there's going to be um, a lot oh, to yeah. talk about regarding that. So if, you, if you're happy to come back at another date, I think we'll, we'll cover that in some detail. Sure. I think that'd be yeah. Um, yeah, a big one to kind of talk about. Yeah. Um, I say just for kind of um, sort of wrapping things up a little bit, a uh, bit of an advice segment, I think, for, for people. So, uh, you know, let's say, for example, someone's you know, been contacted by the police or the sea regarding, you know, potentially an illegal flight, whatever it might be, um, you know, what what should you do? You know whether it is the CA or the police that have said you've been doing this illegally. What would your advice be? You know, is it to consult the regulations straight away to find or what have I been, what what have I done illegally, or would it be you know contact a legal body, and get professional advice? Yeah, um, before I answer that question, I I've got to say uh, as a as a barrister, I'm direct access qualified. Uh, so unless I have a client that's signed up to. Um, my professional code of conduct and, 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 and is onboarded that way. I can't give advice as I would do now. So uh, the way that barristers tend to deal with this is I, I'm talking to you now as I'm advising myself. Um, okay. So what, what would I do in that situation as a, as a, as a, a person that has a, an operational authorization and somebody's complained about my, my flying to the police? The, this is a really interesting point, and um, I worked with a number of members of the House of Lords on the Air Traffic Management and Unmanned Aircraft Act with respect to how police can, um, in, I wouldn't necessarily say interfere, but it could be, but also 
how they will conduct themselves whilst a person is conducting flight. Because we have this overarching rule, don't we, in Article 241, not to endanger persons. So at what point does an interference by a police officer uh, compromise our, my responsibility under Article 241? Mm. Because it's a distraction, right? While I've started conducting flight. Yeah, they might have received a legitimate complaint. They may well have done. Um, and this is a problem with the Act. It doesn't define what that means. What if that police officer comes into my takeoff and landing zone of 30 metres that I've set up? And now I have to go to my alternate landing site because this is now being compromised. What? And then the police officer says, you're evading me. You're, you're, you're trying to get away from me. You know, where, where do we go from that? Um, no, I'm just trying to land my, my platform in my alternate landing zone because you're now standing in my primary one. This is for your own safety. And this is, you know, one of the challenges we're going to have, and I will come round to your question. One of the challenges we're going to have is... Is, is the fact that police officers do need some degree of education around this um, in order to be able to conduct themselves. Yeah, they will be dealing with the nefarious users who are trying to smuggle contraband into prisons, and, and rightly so. You know, They've got to interfere and, and deal with that in a, in a lawful way. But if I was flying my drone and a police officer was to come up to me uh, and say, I've got a complaint about you flying a drone, I'd say, could you just give me some moments, please, so I can land my platform safely, as I'm mandated to do under law. That's what I would say. And I'd say, could you stand behind me? Because obviously behind me is a safe place, as we know. Um, and I'm sure you guys educate your students on that. Um, because I'm, I've got the drone, you know, visual line of sight at this, you know, this time, unless I'm on an EV loss, then it could be longer. So you'd say, look, I'm flying at distance here. You're going to have to give me some time to do this. And there have been some instances in America where um, where somebody who's requested somebody to land um, hasn't done it in a time frame that they've wanted, and they've taken oppressive action. We have mm. seen that. So we've got to be really careful about this. And so I would hope that on that on that plea to the officer to say, look, let me just land my drone safely, please. And then we can have a discussion. I'm not running away. Um, I'm fully compliant with the CAA's regulations. I have an operational authorization or what it may be. Uh, and I'll show you my paperwork, but just let me land the drone. We land the drone. And then I ask the police officer, okay, officer, you, you now have my full attention. What is the basis of your complaint? Because... I want to know what the case is against me, uh, right? That's that's what I need to know in order to be able to explain properly what what my defence might be, right? I want to know what is it you're complaining about, and, and and from there we then have to look at whatever it may be, and there could be a whole load of things. You know, he may say you're endangering a person during flight. Um, you have flown beyond VLOS. Uh, you were in a restricted airspace without permission. Um, oh, look, I look at your drone. Your operator ID is not displayed. Right? Um, uh, let me have a look at your paperwork now. Are you competent um, for your category of flight? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and so these are, these are going to be drone offences that you'll now see under the Act, what I've just talked through. So... 
you know, and, and then really what you need is my phone number. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, to, to help you with this, because, uh, you know, there are, I mean, I, I, I've, I've spoken to some people in the industry and they have been challenged by the police. They've shown the police their paperwork and they didn't understand what it was they were looking at. Um, you know, no, that's 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 not because the police are not competent. They just haven't got to that point of understanding. You know, it's you know, go back to when cars first came on the road. They, you know, the police didn't know at that time, you know, what what all of the rules were that related to road. I'm sure, but over decades, you know, we now have dedicated police traffic officers. And on that point, you know, just by correlation, very quickly, you know, one thing I did say when this this act was going through the House of Lords was that all it's going to mean is that, you know, police authorities are now going to rely on their own UAS units to advise them on what what the legal applications are. Unfortunately, what that means is you're now taking away those qualified and competent personnel from a potential search and rescue task to deal with checking somebody's paperwork and advising. You know, they're being taken away from those great, great, great jobs that they do, um, you know, to benefit society using this great technology, which is, a, which is hopefully a, going to be a short-term consequence as they, as they upskill. But, you know, we, we just don't know what that looks like at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about the... Um... <sighs> Obviously, you kind of mainly touched on operational authorization holders, but I suppose, and then you, you did kind of allude to it afterwards, where we've you know we have these different layers now of requirements here, whether it is your sub two fifties, your C one aircraft, your legacy transitions, your operational authorization, what PDRA are you operating under, under your operation, and you must, I mean, I, you must feel quite. It must be an absolute minefield for the police because there is so many layers of well, I've got to mm. potentially challenge this person, but what am I challenging them on? And then I've got to know, well, what yeah. are they doing? Does it fit into the right category? <clears throat> if they're in that category, yeah. have they done X, Y, and Z that fits in that? And it's it's such a yeah. complex layer. And I suppose you do feel sorry. Well, I, I feel quite sorry, actually, for the police because it's, things are changing so quickly that they can't, they won't always know yeah. what I think what they were right. just sorry just about getting their head around the fact that you needed a pfco to work commercially and everyone started to get the, the hang of that and the idea behind it and then suddenly boof that's all gone and now it's almost back to square one again with learning everything again for them so yeah same sort of thing yeah. i suppose isn't it <laughs> and, and you know the, the the next question really is going to be well if if to your point alan the 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 officer that attends does not at that moment in time know what the offense is that's been caused so what do they do they arrest you on suspicion of, but under the act, they can now seize your equipment. Mm. Now, well, hang on a minute, officer. I've got a drone job tomorrow. I need my drone. Yeah, but I'm seizing it because I, I believe, and that's the standard, I believe that you've committed an offence. And I would say to the officer, well, you, you might believe that at the moment, but that's not, that's not correct. Um, for whatever reason, but I need my kit for my survey that I've got booked in for tomorrow. I lose this client tomorrow. I've lost all of the work because I've had to postpone it for the last three weeks because of bad weather, and they they need this data. You know, at the end of the day, what what drone operators are doing is selling data. Drones are just a sexy way of capturing it, right? <laughs> um, and, and that's what we're in the business of doing. 
and you, you know those kind of obstacles are just not needed and it's you know the, the reason why they have powers to seize equipment is because of the nefarious user you know i i need that drone to prove that it was used to demonstrate uh smuggling drugs into prisons mm. you know but we're not all in that bucket <laughs> right but but that that's where we are and um hopefully we don't mm. go down that road you know we don't have lots of cases like that but you know we we just don't know what we don't know at the moment no yeah exactly yeah it's uh, it's interesting and i think we've only really just started to scratch the surface i think really with all of this there's so many little avenues that we could explore and uh, um you know talk about for for a long time i think really but i think um looking at the time i think we've been going for quite a decent amount of time for uh, our normal types of episodes so uh, unless anyone else has got anything else to add what do you think adam and matthew have we covered the important stuff do you think to start with uh, unless Matthew, you've got anything, um, I think really it's for me it's more, um, you know, do you, you do you have a service already that you can offer people now? I think we've kind of already covered it a little bit, but you know, is there a service that you have mm. for people that are potentially, I suppose, more towards companies? I would have thought and professional operators. What what's the service that you offer for those guys? So yeah, I mean it's it really is that there will be a number of legal issues that hit an operator's desk, whether they're a sole operator or, or a company. And it, it's, it's, it's a fairly broad church, Adam, with respect to that. And it's, it's quite a lot of the issues that we've covered in, in the session today. And it's, it's making sure that, you know, they, they have the advice that they need in order to conduct business in a, in a safe way, because obviously safety is paramount, safety first, second and third, isn't it? Um, but also that they can conduct business in a way that's that that also positively endorses what what we as a drone community do. I think that's a really important message. You know, c customer perception or, or you know public perception is always going to be uh, important to what it is that we do. But yeah, in terms of the realm, it's it's all all, all on my my website uh, Blackstones and. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, sometimes I just talk to people and, and understand what it is that they're doing. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes no, no, no advice is needed, but sometimes it is um, because people get themselves into hot water. Um, usually of last resort, but, you know, not always. Perfect. And uh, you mentioned a book earlier on um, in, in the in the podcast. Uh, where can they find that? Um, where, yeah, can, where can they get a book? Yeah. So that's on my website too, a, a drone, drone Pilot's Legal Handbook, and just download it. Um, uh, you, use your card, pay some money. Um, it's very well priced. Um, and I, I did that, as I said, in collaboration with an Australia drone lawyer, um, Tom Pills. And uh, he, he's got, got something going out there too. Perfect. Super, Richard. It's been really informative listening to you, and I think it's great to have had a sort of professional perspective on all these things that we like to chat about on a regular basis. So thanks very much for joining us today. Um, just finally, just for absolute clarity for the listeners out there, of course, we'll try to include it in the description and so on. But can you just clarify the website uh, and, and where people can get, can get hold of you directly? Yeah, it's blackstons.co.uk. Um, I'm also uh, on Twitter. Uh, I think Blackston Law is my handle. You have to forgive me. I'm slightly archaic, as you can see with the grey hair. Um, but I'm on I'm on Twitter too. Uh, not not every day, uh, I must say. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I'm I'm there, and um, I'm I'm also on LinkedIn. Super. That's magic. 
Brilliant. All right. Well, uh, again, on behalf of all of us, thanks. Uh, thanks very much again, uh, Richard. It's been a pleasure, and uh, hopefully, we'll look forward to speaking to you uh, again very soon. Hopefully, in the it's future as well. It's been a pleasure meeting you all, and thank you so much for your time. No worries at all. All right. Well, thanks very much anyway, and uh, yeah, we'll speak to you all soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you.